Well, Lisa Nicole Brennan was born May 17, 1978. Her mother, Chrisanne Brennan, claimed that the father of the child was a fellow student named Steve Jobs. Uh, at the time, Jobs was just a, your typical college student, um, maybe a little aimless. He was known for coming to class barefoot and not washing himself, but of course he would soon become uh, the founder of Apple Computing. Jobs denied the claim that Brennan uh, was uh, the mother of his child. He denied that the child was his, and, and so Brennan had to take him to court. A DNA test um, confirmed within a 5.9% margin of error that Jobs was the little girl's father. Her name was Lisa. Well, Jobs, with some sort of uh, mathematical rationale, still denied the claim and claimed that uh, a 5.9% margin of error meant that 28,000 other men in California could technically be Lisa's father. Uh, but the courts uh, persisted, and uh, one of the things that came up in the case was that he had named the computer project he was working on at the time the Apple Lisa and he was asked, well, why would you name this computer project Lisa if you were not the father of little Lisa? And he said that it, standard, it stood for, it was an acronym, Lisa was an acronym for Local Integrated System Architecture. And that it was pure coincidence that it was the same name as this little girl. Well, the courts deemed that the 94.1% DNA match was sufficient to compel him to pay child support and ordered that he would pay $385 a month. When Apple went public and Jobs became an uh, overnight multi-millionaire, uh, he was forced to increase that payment to $500 a month. But he still refused to pay for her schooling. Now, all of this was discovered uh, by an interviewer for Time magazine. Time magazine had chosen Jobs to be the man of the year of 1982, and so this interviewer was doing this puff piece on him, and discovered this neglect of his family responsibility and uh, his bitterness about it and realized that this would be a huge scandal for time when this became public. And so they kind of buried that information, but at the last minute they decided not to put him on the cover of the magazine and instead the person of the year for 1982 was the machine of the year and it was a picture of the Apple computer itself um, because they were worried about the scandal that would come from supporting a man that so clearly and flagrantly uh, denied the responsibility of looking after this little girl. Well, what we learn from this is that sometimes a family responsibility can be an unexpected burden. When that responsibility is neglected, the courts are required to step in and enforce the taking care of the vulnerable. Now, what is this court case with a barefoot businessman uh, who's reluctant to support a girl and his family have to do with the book of Ruth. Oh, you know. Turn in your Bibles to chapter 4, where we're going to learn about the sandal scandal. We're going to see five scenes of a courtroom drama that show God's invisible plan in action. So uh, as the narrative unfolds, we're going to unfold those points as they come on. And the, the five scenes of this courtroom drama, we've kind of moved from the rom-com chick flick um, a narrative to a courtroom scene now, just as dramatic and maybe even more so. And scene number one is 
previously on. You know, whenever you're watching any of these court dramas, there's always previously on whatever, days of our lives. Uh, this is what happens. So remember that the last verse of chapter 3, verse 18 uh, Naomi says to Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man, Boaz, will not rest, but will settle the matter today. That is the to be continued. And now we're picking up in chapter 4. And so let's just recap previously on uh, the days of the judges. Uh, what's happening here? Well, the book of Ruth, as you remember, is set during the time that the judges ruled Israel. There's no king in Israel, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So the whole country is falling into moral and spiritual darkness, and yet there is this little enclave of believers in uh, an enclosure, as it were, a little moral biosphere in the town of Bethlehem. And they represent the faithful followers of Yahweh throughout the land of Israel who are not just doing what's right in their own eyes but still remember what they were taught about the law of God. And so this book is a snapshot of normality. As we've been going through Judges in the evening, we see just how, what disarray and, and chaos the country is in. But here we have a snapshot of normal life. There's no miracles. There's no revelation from God, no angels. There's just ordinary people doing ordinary things. There's weddings, there's funerals, there's business deals, that's harvest time, and that's what we've been looking at. Now, we've... Some of the questions that have been raised have been quite deep questions. For a, for a snapshot of normality, uh, this comes with this uh, array of uh, deep existential questions. When Elimelech leaves Bethlehem because there's no food in Israel, because God is judging Israel, remember in the time of the judges, this was the cycle God would judge them to drive them to repentance. And before they repented, people were dying of hunger. Elimelech takes his wife Naomi and his sons Malon and Kilion to Moab which is not something Israelites were allowed to do. They were not allowed to leave the land and sojourn somewhere else. But he immigrates to Moab to escape the judgment of God. But of course we saw you cannot escape God's sovereignty. And he dies there and his sons die there. And now he's got this um, widow and two daughter-in-laws as well. So as they come back to, uh, you know, remember Orpah stays with her gods and her people, but Ruth clings to her mother-in-law Naomi. Naomi comes back to Israel for this purpose. And, and the big question of chapter 1 was why. That's the big existential question we were left with. Why do bad things like this happen? Why did Elimelech die? And the answer we saw is it was his time. God knows when everyone's going to die and you can't escape that, you can't prolong that. God is sovereign over all things. We define sovereignty as God's control of all things, even down to the, the most minute detail. Remember, Jesus says that you can't even change the color of of your hair without God say so. A bird doesn't die without God say so. He is involved in the details. That's sovereignty. And so the answer for why bad things happen is actually more of a question of who. Who is in charge? And the answer is God is in charge. And so we've been dealing with that and why these things happen and how we can try to understand what God is doing. Then we had to look at the next question was how. Because Ruth decides to tr put, you know, go all in with Yahweh, choose God, and his people, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die and be buried. Your people, my people, your God, my God. Remember that? And so she joins uh, Naomi and decides God is going to have to provide for us, these two widows. But how? There's, there's no way. Remember, Naomi said, what, if I meet a man tonight and I have a baby and he grows up, you're going to marry him? Is that your plan? That's a more likely scenario than what we actually need is a kinsman redeemer. A single, rich, relative 
who doesn't have a problem marrying a Moabite widow who might not even be able to have children because she hasn't had children in 10 years. And then the narrator says, it just so happens that's exactly what played out. So in God's sovereignty, he brings us together. We saw that there's no coincidences. How did God provide for Naomi and for Ruth? Two ways, through his law, which had a stipulation that people had to leave the gleanings of their field as they were harvesting anything that dropped off the wagon you were supposed to leave there for poor people. And so the obedience to his law is what provided for these widows, but also through providence. Providence we defined as God's involvement in his creation without breaking the laws of nature. Or just pop quiz, what do we call it when God is involved in his creation by breaking the laws of nature? What's that called? That's a miracle. But God, that's very rare in, in, in history. But all the time, God is involved down to the most minute detail in his creation, not through miracles, but through his other me mechanism of running his creation, that is providence. What, what the world calls luck, what the world calls just so happened, um, what a coincidence. And we saw there's no such thing as coincidence or luck. God is in control. That is providence. Okay, so that's what we've seen. That's the how. We, we sort of ended last week with the question, when? So when is this redeemer going to be provided? A redeemer was the next of kin who was responsible for providing financially for the vulnerable in the family. When is that going to happen? And we ended with today. It's going to happen today. So good if you came today. Let's move on to the next scene. Courtship heads to court. That's the name of the scene. Ruth 4, verse 1 and 2. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. He turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So this is a very blow-by-blow blow account of the day so far, isn't it? He goes there, uh, he sits down. That's, the sitting down seems important, keeps being mentioned. The guy that he spoke about just happened to come by. Remember, Providence is his work here. But Boaz is also laying a little bit of a trap. And the person that he spoke about was, remember when she said, oh, please spread your wings over me, um, and, which was like a leap year engagement. You know, she's basically proposing to him. And he says he wants to do that, but there is, there's this legal problem that there is a closer redeemer. The, the law of the Leverite from Leviticus 25, Le, Leverite, remember, comes from the Latin word levir, meaning um, brother-in-law. The law of the Leverite was that it was the closest male relative preferably the brother-in-law, if you had one, that was responsible. So it wasn't just any male relative. It had to be the closest. And now she wants Boaz. We want Boaz. We like him. He's a godly guy. But he has integrity. And so he wants to do this the right way. And so he says, there's this other redeemer. And he kind of tells her, if the other redeemer wants to redeem you, then he'll do it. And if not, then I swear by Yahweh, I will be the one to redeem you. And we're thinking... No, no, Boaz, you missed the whole point. She put on perfume and everything. Come on. Why aren't you, why aren't you saying, well, how could you possibly say if he wants to redeem you, let him do it? But Boaz has a plan. He's very shrewd. And all of this sitting down in the gate is part of his plan. He's taking his courtship to court. 
Now, the gate was the place of public business. It, it's the part people would come in, people would come out. There would often be, you know, taxes levied in the biggest cities. This is just a small town, but this is sort of where you come and you announce that you're, you're, you're in, you're out. And the gate was where people would sit and they would do business. And it was in a public forum. You know, this isn't a smoke-filled room or off in the shadows. This was out in public. And so this is, this is the place that you would have a court case. It's also just the place you would greet people. So there's a little overlap happening. He's sitting and he's waiting for this guy, this other redeemer, who's a relative of his. And sure enough, the guy comes and he says, hey, th why the hurry? Have a seat. And he sits down. And he says, sure, why not? Because, you know, and they sit down and they're, I don't know, smoking cigars or whatever. And the next thing that happens is Boaz starts pulling men coming by. Hey, why don't you come sit down here? Hey, why don't you come sit down here? And, or, or he's actually arranged for these 10 men, the elders of the city, to be there at this time. And they all just sit down. And what just happened is court has been convened. When you have 10 elders of the city sitting at the gate, you're in court. He wants to set up a scenario where the, the, the discourse that happens now goes on record and is publicly witnessed by the authority structure of the town. He's up to something. Now, Leviticus 25, verse 25 says, If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then the nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So if this brother becomes poor and he has to sell his property to get things going, remember the property was divided in the land by tribe and then by clan and then by family and, and it was passed down from one male to the next to keep that whole parcel land in the family. But if you got poor, you could sell a piece of it for a time to get money. And the, the law said, the law of Leviticus 25, 25, was that the brother-in-law needed to be the one to buy that, to help you out, so that you keep the land in the family. And if he's not around, whoever the nearest guy is. So this is the redeemer who has the right, the legal right and responsibility to buy this land from Elimelech, the dead Elimelech, so that there's money for Naomi. So this is how the law of God was set up. Uh, it's not just a welfare system here. The, the, this is all carefully taken care of to make sure that the vulnerable are looked after. So Boaz is showing his integrity here. He's not trying to force God's will. He trusts God to provide, but without compromise. You know, later David would do the same thing. Remember, David was told, you're going to be king. And then Saul's trying to kill him. And next thing he finds... Saul fast asleep and he can just kill him in his sleep, but he refuses to do that because he's leaving it up to the Lord. So Boaz says, this is what I want, but I'm going to make sure that God is in this. I'm not going to push it. So now in this scene, courtship goes to court, we also we have to meet this, this guy. He calls him friend. Now there's something very cool here. Friend is not the word used in Hebrew when, when he says there um, in verse 1. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. Most English versions translate that friend, and that comes from the Greek, the old Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that uses the word friend. The translators of the Septuagint took the original Hebrew and turned it to friend because they didn't know what the original Hebrew meant. And so they try to figure, well, it must mean friend by the context, you know, just buddy because or something, but it's a specific Hebrew term, ploni almoni. So he says to the guy, ploni almoni, sit down. Well, ploni almoni is not a Greek word. 
I mean, a Hebrew word. It's not a Hebrew word. It's, it's just, it just sounds funny. But it's used in two other places in Scripture when they're speaking of locations that identity needs to be hidden, and the location in the English is translated as such and such. So such and such a place. So that's actually a better way to translate this, is that, uh, you know, hey, Mr. Such and Such. Um, you know, in South Africa, we, if you want to talk about a person like that without mentioning their name, you call him an okie There was this okie you know, usually it's like, there's this clumsy dude. I, you know, I was in line, there was this okie who couldn't find his credit card or whatever. Um, maybe here we say like, Joe Soap, you know, or a John Doe, or a Mr. Whatchamacallit. That's what's happening here with this Poloni Maloney. What's his name? Poloni Elmoni. So, Boaz knows his name and uses his name, but the narrator covers his name. Why do you think he's doing that? Why do you think he's calling him throughout the story? He's going to be called Mr. So-and-so. Well, to hide his identity, which is interesting because everybody else in the story is named. But this guy, who's quite a crucial character at this point, he is the kinsman redeemer of Naomi, and he's not named. Well, that's because something's about to happen that's pretty embarrassing. And he actually gets a little bit of a name change. We'll get to that. His identity is being protected. He's in the witness protection program in this court case because of his selfish response. So Boaz waits for him to show up, assembles uh, these ten elders, and we are now in a courtroom scene. Mr. Poloni was just doing his business in the market and finds himself on the stand. Why did Boaz not go to him privately? Why did Boaz not talk to him about this just, you know, cousin to cousin? Why is he doing this in court? Because Boaz has a plan. Let's look at his plan. Verse, uh, the third point, we're going to call this scene, your right to write a check. <laughs> he gives the Redeemer his right. Verse 3, he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative, cousin Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the guy says, I'll redeem it. This is the Okipoloki's lucky day. This is fantastic. Boaz is so considerate. Here he's gone and he's set up a whole legal proceeding for me the paperwork's done. I just have to sign on the bottom land, uh, line. And this is, I just went to market, and guess what? I just inherited a whole field. This is great. Some guys have all the luck. You know, have you ever been bumped up to first class? You're like, wow, that's what just happened to this guy. I mean, he's just a normal okey-pokey, you know? And next thing, he's got this whole new income stream. Elimelech's land that's kind of been sitting there. Maybe the people in town had parceled it out or using it for like a, a dumping ground. Who knows? Now it's his and he can, have a, he can have a bigger crop and he can make more money and, and he's just getting all of this. Of course I'll buy it from Elimelech from this old lady who's, you know, she's going to die and I'm going to inherit this land and she doesn't even have any kids. This is fantastic. This is my lucky day. Thanks, Boaz! For getting all the people here so we don't even have to do that. Where do I sign? Where do I sign? You know? And we're in the back of the courtroom saying, Boaz, what are you doing? Your plan is backfiring. He wants the land. Why didn't you 
Why didn't you make it sound like it was a bad deal? Oh, oh, that's coming. He's just giving this guy some rope so that he can hang himself, right? This is why he didn't talk about Ruth in the first place. This is why he didn't go in private, because he wants to catch him off guard and have him say something in this kind of deposition-like setting that becomes legally binding. And so yet again in this book, we see man's responsibility and God's sovereignty working together. You know, when we discuss this theologically among ourselves, often we, we, we fall into one camp or the other. There's people like, I believe in free will, and God can't override my free will, and I chose God. And then you get the other camp, and it's like, no, the Bible says that God chose you, and that means he must have overridden your free will, and it's like free will versus sovereignty. The Bible never does that. Over and over through Scripture, those two are just put together. God uses our decisions. He uses our likes and dislikes. He uses our folly and our sin and our obedience and all of those things to accomplish his will, the will which he ordained before we were even born. Does that mean we don't have a choice? No, of course we have a choice. You think God doesn't know about that choice? You think that isn't the exact choice God wanted you to choose? He doesn't have to override your free will. He can make you want the right thing. And so that's what's happening here. Boaz is trusting in God's sovereignty, but he's also setting things up from a human perspective, to put the odds in his favor. And we see this throughout Scripture, that God's sovereignty does not obviate man's responsibility. One example is in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 15 and following, there's this cool little example of that. So Nehemiah is building the wall of Jerusalem after the return from the Babylonian captivity. He's in charge of that project, but the there's opposition. The Samaritans and the, the locals are trying to attack and kill these people so they can't rebuild Jerusalem. And so he prays to God to protect them, and God does protect them. But look what else happens. Nehemiah 4.15, he says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held the spears and shields, and bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with, with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. So Nehemiah says, please, God, protect us from these bad guys. Now let's get to work. And everyone, strap on your Glock, you know, <laughs> make sure it's loaded. And you have your, your trowel in your one hand and your gun in the other kind of thing. And so that's why Spurgeon called his magazine The Sword and the Trowel. You know, both together. You've got to do the work of the kingdom, but you also have to be ready to defend. But, but why? Didn't Nehemiah trust God? Yes, he trusted God. That's why he did that. And so God, he knew that God would use man's responsibility and, and man's function to do what God wanted to do. Um, Oliver Cromwell, famously in 1642 at the Battle of Edge Hill, he was supposed to have told this to his roundhead troops um, at the opening battle of the English Civil War. Uh, Cromwell you know, was a believer and he said, Put your trust in God, my boys, but mind to keep your powder dry. You've heard that, right? Trust in God, but keep your powder dry. You know, your, your gun's not going to work if your gunpowder 
is wet. So yes, we're going to trust in God to win the battle, but make sure your gun is loaded. <laughs> so we need to learn that ourselves, right? We need to trust in God's sovereignty, but at the same time, we can't be passive and inactive. We need to get to work and do what God tells us to do, trusting that His will will work out. So you have understood sovereignty when it comforts you and when it causes you to trust God more. You have misunderstood sovereignty if it causes you to become passive and inactive. And this is a mistake that people still make to this day, Christians all over the world. There's a group of Christians called hyper-Calvinists. Hyper-Calvinists believe that because God is sovereign, which is what Calvinists teach, that God is in control of all things, including salvation, hyper-Calvinists take it the next step and they say, because God is sovereign over who is saved, we do not need to evangelize. In fact, hyper-Calvinists go one step further and say, we ought not to evangelize. Because that's like manipulating people. Telling people the gospel is making it a, a man-driven event rather than a God-driven event and that God would save them without us. And so true hyper-Calvinists don't even teach their children the gospel. And I had a, a pastor from England once asked me for counsel on this because he was a pastor of this church that had traditionally been hyper-Calvinist and he was trying to fix that doctrine. And they said, no, this is what our constitution says, that we are not to evangelize and have missions, outreaches, and these types of things. And he said, yes, but the Bible says that we must do those things. And so they, they fired him because <laughs> he wanted to change the constitution because it had been there for 150 years. Well, the Bible had been there longer, but that didn't seem to bug them. But we see in Scripture that that's just nonsense. Yes, you, you, you have God's sovereignty involved, and yet you have to evangelize. And this is the, in, in my discussion with people who don't hold this view of Scripture, which I see plain as daylight in Scripture, but they say the reason they don't hold it is because of this logical um, necessity. They say, if it's true that God has already chosen who will be saved, and we, we believe that, that God has already decided who's going to be saved, then nobody would evangelize. Because God's going to save those people whether you evangelize or not. And that if this was true, Christianity would not be a, a, a missionary organization because why send people out if God's going to get those people saved anyway? Because they're already elect. And the answer is, if you just look at history, the exact opposite is true. There's something about people who understand sovereignty that makes them want to tell everyone about Jesus. You just think of um, the greatest missionaries, uh, William Carey, Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Um, these are some of the greatest missionaries. They're all, they're all believing in God's sovereignty. That's what made them want to be missionaries. Think of some of the greatest evangelists in history, Charles Spurgeon. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards. The Great Awakening was sparked by people who believed in the sovereignty of God. And so here we see this. Naomi wants Ruth and Boaz to be married, so she tells Ruth, make sure you clean yourself and put in some perfume and go and make the first move. And Boaz wants, you know, Okipoloki to surrender his right and not to think too long about it and not get counsel from his wife, and so he kind of sets up this ambush. It's brilliant. Trust in God, but keep your powder dry. 
Let's move to the fourth scene. We see what happens here. This is the sandal scandal. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, so the guy has said, yeah, 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 of course I'll redeem it. This is fantastic. And Boaz says, by the way, make sure this is on the record. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Well, then the Redeemer said, uh, 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 I, ca- I cannot redeem it for myself, uh, lest I impair my own inheritance. You take my right of, of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. I mean, this is just so brilliant. His plan works out perfectly. Now, this is kind of a lame excuse, isn't it? Oh, no, suddenly, you know, suddenly I realize that if I, um, if I do this whole thing now, my inheritance is, is going to be compromised. Like, no, it's not. You're still going to have what you had. You're just not going to have anything more because your job is to make sure that this property goes not to you and your family but to Elimelech's line. And so Mr. So-and-so shows his true colors by refusing to marry Ruth. It's interesting to me that this is the first time Boaz calls her Ruth the Moabite. You know, throughout the story, she's called Ruth the Moabite or the Moabites, but Boaz doesn't seem to care about that. Remember, we saw from the genealogy that most likely, if the genealogy is the way we understand it, Boaz, his mom was a Gentile named Rahab. So he doesn't have a problem with Gentile women like most of the Jewish men would. But here, he highlights that she's a Gentile. Oh, you get the land. This is fantastic. We're signed. Just before you sign, just remember the footnote, the fine print, is that with this land comes the Gentile. <laughs> that you're going to have to marry and have a little Gentile baby with, you know. And then the Gentile baby's going to get all of that land. And the guy's like, oh, oh, no, uh, this is no good. Um, how do I get out of this? Will you please redeem it? And Bo is just like, okay. Okay. But this is a scandal. What kind of person, what kind of man will not provide for two needy widows in his family? Mr. So-and-so, apparently. But Mr. So-and-so is about to get a name change. Now, verse 7 is a sidebar. It's not its own scene. It's in the courtroom, you know, when the, the judge calls them up and they kind of come to the top of them. Yeah, nobody else can hear what's going on. That's, here's a little sidebar in verse 7. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So so you see what he's saying? He's saying that there was this custom, this tradition, that the way you ratify a deal like this was to take off your sandal in front of everybody and hand it to the guy that you're giving the land to. So it's just kind of like, you know, we, we, our custom, if you ratify a deal, you make a deal, yes, deal, you, you, you shake on it, you know. Or if, if you're a kid, you, you know, shake on it. There's like, there's like a little physical component to the transaction. Well, this physical component to the transaction was like, here, take my sandal, you know. Thank you. I've got his sandal. Everybody see that? Okay, I'm, I'm the new redeemer. It's kind of like the passing of the baton. But that's a kind of strange custom, isn't it? Where do you think that came from? I'm glad you asked. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25. Now, I've read this passage to you 
before, but I was kind of sneaky. I didn't read all of it. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Towards the end, uh, middle end, you get chapter 25. And as I say, I've been reading this throughout the series to tell you about the the kinsman redeemer, but I I always stop short of this cool little part. So I'll read the whole passage to you today. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. This is the law of the brother-in-law, the, the Leverite law. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. So that's, that's what I've read to you a couple of times during the series to remind you that's why Boaz is the redeemer, that's why there's all this thing, blah, 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 Leverite marriage. But now verse 7 tells you this. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in public, in the presence of the elders, and pull his sandal off his foot. And spit in his face. That's in the Bible. How cool is that? And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> so this is like a really interesting little tidbit, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, you can go back to Ruth. Um, there's this custom that in the law of Moses said if the, if the Leverite doesn't want to do his duty, they would have this transaction where she takes off the sandal, spits in his face. So this is a very shameful thing. This is, it was scandalous to be sandalous, as it were, right? And his name gets changed to his whole house. His whole family's name is now the sandalous one. You know, just to remind everyone what a scandal it was that this man refused to do what God said he needed to do to perpetuate the inheritance of his brother. So it's a big social thing. Now, I don't know how often that actually happened. There's no other record of this in Scripture. But certainly, it's a quirky enough law that it would develop into at least this tradition of when we're doing redeemer transactions. Look, don't, please don't. Nobody spit at me. I'm, I'm volunteering. You know, you can have this. You can buy it if you want to. Boaz wants to buy it. No spitting around and takes off his sandal, and, you know, I don't know if he gets a, a name change or not, but he's now barefoot in front of everybody, and this has become an official transaction. So we move to the fifth scene. Case closed. Verse 8. When the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders, And all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilion and Malon. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. 
to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that Yahweh will give you by this young woman. I mean, this is just a great scene. This is like when the verdict comes in and everyone gets up and cheers, this is, this is exactly what we want to happen. The case is closed. Mr. Okie Poloki in the corner is like, I don't know what just happened here. Did I dodge a bullet or why is everybody cheering? Um, but anyway, the case is closed. The wedding bells are ringing. He makes this official. I've done, I'm going to buy this land. I'm going to look after Naomi. I'm going to take Ruth. All's well that ends well as... Shakespeare would say. When Lisa Brennan was nine years old, the little girl, um, Steve Jobs had a change of heart. And he reached out to Krizan and said he admitted that he was the father of Lisa and he wanted to get to know her. And so they got to know each other and Lisa asked for her name to be changed so that it would be Lisa Brennan Jobs. And Steve Jobs, Jobs, not Jobs, Jobs was uh, very relieved and agreed wholeheartedly and um, he actually, you know, upped his child support and became influential in her life. Uh, he would eventually pay for Lisa to attend Harvard. Uh, a poignant detail is that he publicly admitted that the Lisa computer was named after Lisa and that local integrated system architecture doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and that he made it up so that he could call it the Lisa, local integrated system architecture. When Jobs died, he left Lisa a sizable inheritance from his fortune. So all's well that ends well. But there's something missing. All's well that ends well assumes the happily ever after that everything goes fine. We've got this amazing blessing that's pronounced over him. May you become renowned. May your name become famous. May your house become productive, as productive as uh, Leah and Rachel. Remember Leah and Rachel, they have the 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. They built up the house of Israel. May your offspring be an offspring that builds up the house of Israel. You know, there's a lot being set up here. There's a lot of pressure on this little kid that everybody's hoping gets born. But there's this little loose end. Ruth has been married before. And she was married for 10 years without any children. That would be highly unusual in those days. The, the, the whole point was to have a male heir that you could pass your land onto and here. Malon and her don't have children for 10 years? What's everybody thinking? We really hope this lady can get pregnant. Because if she can't, then this whole plan stalls. And the problem's still there. What happens to the land? What happens to the inheritance? What, what happens to Elimelech's whole family line? 
Well, God's plan doesn't have loose ends. And so you better come back next week so I can tell you how he tied it up. There's a surprising twist in the tale, too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this reminder that your plan does not have loose ends. Um, in our minds, sometimes there's these notes of dissonance that need resolution. There's these loose ends dangling in the wind. But we know that you have a plan and a purpose from before we were even born that culminates in the, the glory of Jesus Christ with all things giving him his rightful place and so we look forward to that day. In the meantime, I pray that you'd help us to uh, be busy with evangelism and missionary work and sharing the amazing good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, that we would be a testimony of those that live under your sovereignty and trust in it, and yet that we would be active to obey and to spread the word of our dear Savior. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen.